Okay, so our uh, subject today, it's um, the next one in the series of talks and um, studies that we've been doing from the book of Galatians. Uh, our subject today, which is based on a passage starting in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23, it's got the title in our program, Being Children of God. But as David King was saying last week, there's quite a bit of overlap between these uh, subjects that we're um, looking at. And it's not just because we've got the start and the end point in the, in the, wrong, in the wrong place in the passage. Um, even though Paul is introducing a very different concept to us um, this week, it's in the context of what he's already said. And he, he keeps going back to it, which is why we seem to have this overlap between the, uh, the, different, the different subjects. Before we start reading in Galatians 3, I did want to ask one of my favourite questions. Um, kind of favourite in the sense that you've probably heard me um, ask it before. Um, and it's about this and everything else that we've studied in um, Galatians. Um, and in asking it, I know it sounds a little bit irreverent, but I'm going to say, so what? So, so what? Paul is going on and on about this. He had the habit of doing that, didn't he? Um, at least no one's fallen to sleep and fallen off their chair like they did in Acts 20. Um, but Paul's going on and on about whether or not Christians need to follow the, follow the Jewish religion in order to be saved. He's defending the gospel and desperately trying to persuade a church which had been led astray. They had been convinced of false teachings. Now, how much of that applies to us today? Any of you guys thinking about getting circumcised in order to make your salvation a little bit more secure? No, I didn't think so. But Paul is going on and on about this. And my point is this, and I was thinking about this just recently um, when I was listening to one of these ministries. Uh, and this is, not, you know, this is not a slight on the person who was giving the ministry. It was just occurred to me, you know, what do I expect to get out of this? You know, what, what's the point? Because if we don't know, if we're not looking for something in particular, then we're not going to find anything, are we? Now, I know it's often said that it's good to be reminded of things even if we've heard them before. Really? <coughs> Well, yes, really, to a point, uh, it is good to be reminded of things that we already know. Um, and the reason for that is because it gives us an opportunity to try to reappreciate them or to appreciate them that little bit more. Um, and what I mean by that is it's an opportunity for us to try and see the value, the value in the things that we are reading about and learning about. Now value, we can think of value in different ways, can't we? Um, it, it, it can be what it costs you or costs somebody else in money or time and, 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 and effort. Or it could be um, what you can do with a thing. Or um, it could be what it's worth to you uniquely and something that might not, the same thing might not be worth the same to somebody else. It, it could be what it's worth to you to have it or, or not to lose it. And quite often we value things more when we lose them or we're at risk of losing them we, because we were taking them for granted beforehand. You know, when, 
when we say, and we were thinking about this um, in one of our earlier passages, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, do we really value that? Or do we just um, think to ourselves, yeah, okay, yeah, I know that, because we've heard it so many times before. Do we have a sense of inwardly saying, wow, or is it just, yeah, I know. So what about Galatians? Is there something amazing in this passage today that should make us say, wow, if we really think about it? Or is it just a whole load of technical arguments about the law and the purpose of the law? Let's find out. We're going to read just a first, the first couple of verses to start off with. So Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to read just from verse 23. He says, Before the coming of this faith, and that's what the, the faith is what he's just been talking about in the previous verse, which is faith in Jesus. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we no longer need a guardian or we're no longer under a guardian. If you remember what we were thinking about, those of you who were here um, last week, um, um, last week's passage, one of the key points, I think, was that the law came after the promise that God made to Abraham. In other words, the law came second. The covenant that God made with Abraham came first, so it takes priority. Even though the promise related to that covenant was not going to be fulfilled until a long time after the law, when the Lord Jesus came. So what was the purpose of the law? It was because God wanted a relationship with, with people. He wanted a relationship with people, but because of sin, they needed looking after, so to speak. In other words, there needed to be something which would moderate their behaviour, something which would encourage them to show their love for God and to provide a way for them to say sorry to God on the many occasions when they let him down and offended him. I suppose you could think of the whole people of Israel as like a bunch of rebellious teenagers um, and they needed a strict guardian to look after them, to keep them under control, to stop them running away or wrecking the house with wild parties. And this is a metaphor, this, you know, slightly humorous sense sort of perspective on it, but it's, this is a metaphor that Paul's using. He's calling um, the law a guardian. The law was a guardian, but only until Jesus came. Now, just one more reference to the earlier passage, um, one more technical point, if you don't mind. Because Paul is using these technical points to build a foundation for something very exciting. And that's a bit we're going to come on to in just, a, in just a moment. But in verse 16, he questions whether God's promise to Abraham was to his seeds or to a seed. Which is a bit strange, um, because if you look back in, in Genesis, you know, whenever you see things quoted from the Old Testament, you should actually go and read the Old Testament bit, because it's, it's a bit of a strange one, this, because 
Paul's making this point, but if you go back and look at the actual promises back in the book of Genesis, they were clearly made to all of Abraham's many generations of descendants, to a multitude of people, about how they were all going to be blessed. And in fact, if you look at modern translations, they tend to translate the word that I think Paul is referring to here, quoting, they tend to translate it as offspring or descendants in, in the plural. But what I think is helpful to remember is that God's promise to Abraham had a dual aspect. Yes, there were blessings for Abraham's descendants, like in Genesis 22, verse 17, that there was going to be a lot of them and that they were going to conquer cities and conquer their enemies and have lots of good stuff. So there were, there were blessings for the descendants of Abraham, his blood descendants, but there was also the gospel promise. And in fact, we get that in the very next verse in Genesis 22, Genesis 22, verse 18, the gospel promise that we've been, we've been referring to previously. And it was a bigger promise than the promise to the descendants of Abraham. And actually, this is the one that Paul's referring to here. It was something that most devout Jews already appreciated, that regardless of the many blessings to the people of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, there was something big coming that would only be fulfilled through one of those descendants, the seed. And Paul is saying that actually Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the seed. And maybe that's why Matthew, when he starts off his gospel, talks about Jesus being the Messiah and the son of Abraham. So where are we going with this? Are you still awake? So technical points but a foundation for something absolutely amazing. Let's just read a few more verses. So I'm going to read from verse 26 to the end of the chapter. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Four amazing things in this little passage, these few verses. Number one, we are united with Christ. And I don't just mean that we're on the same page. We are united, we are joined with Jesus Christ. We are in Christ, verse 26. We are baptised into Christ and clothed with Christ, verse 27. We are all one in Christ, verse 28. And we all belong to Christ, verse 29. And we could do a deep study on each one of those individually. Um, but you get the idea, don't you? We don't have time to do a deep study on them. Uh, don't worry, we are. <laughs> I'm going to finish today. Um, but you get the idea that we are as close to Jesus Christ as we could possibly be. And when we think of who Jesus Christ is, that's incredible, isn't it? And that's only the first point. Second point is because we are united with Jesus Christ, we are part of Abraham's seed the seed that was mentioned. In fact, as Paul says more precisely in verse 29, we are 
Abraham's seed in the singular. So the point he's making is that the seed is singular. <coughs> the seed of the promise to Abraham is one seed, but although we are many, we are part of the one because we are in Christ. So that's a special thing in itself, although you might say, well, okay, that's a bit technical. I preferred the first point. Okay, but the, but the second one is like a bridging point because it comes onto something even more incredible. It's important because a long time ago, Almighty God, who created everything, made a very special promise to Abraham, a promise of unimaginable blessing that would come through his seed, and he had you and me in mind when he made that promise of unimaginable blessing. That's, that's what God is giving to us. And I suppose you might regard even that as a technical point, but it leads on to what is undeniably a, a, an incredible point that follows on from that. Uh, the fourth point, something more amazing than us just being children of Abraham, which is what the Jews were so proud of. But we are, as it said in verse 26, children of God. Children of God. Wow. I'm not sure if you're feeling the wow yet. <laughs> uh, and in fairness, you've probably heard these things said before, um, maybe many times. So it does need us sometimes just to pause and to focus and to, to really think about what some of these things mean. But at least we can see that there's something here that's worth ploughing through all that stuff about the law, isn't there? There is something which is a bit more exciting about whether or not we need to get circumcised. Although speaking as a guy, I'm pretty pleased about that that is one of the things that we don't need to worry about. But I'm not even finished yet, because it gets even better than that. And it starts at the end of verse 29. And in the following verses, Paul goes back to this metaphor about uh, the law being like a guardian, appointed to look after children. Um, but he goes on to talk about what it means, what it really means for us to be children of God. So we're going to read the next little bit of the passage. The language does get a little bit dense again, um, so don't, don't worry. We're not going to look at every um, single part of it. We're not going to get into... Um, the bit about the elementary spiritual forces of the world. Uh, not that it's spooky magic that we can't get our heads around, but it's, you know, we, we, we haven't, we've only got so much time. Um, so as I read through it, just look for the references that remind us of family, of what it might mean to be in God's family. So I'll start at verse 29 of chapter 3 again, and then just down to verse 7 of chapter 4. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery, under the elementary spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, 
God has made you also an heir. So there are three big themes, I think, in that passage that Paul just touches on. Um, and we're only going to look at them briefly as well um, this morning. But three big things. He talks about sonship, what it means to be a child of God. He talks about the cross, albeit briefly. And he talks about our inheritance, the ultimate expression of the blessing that was promised via, via Abraham. Let's think about those in turn. Firstly, sonship. And I should just say, and it's probably um, speaking the obvious, um, but men and women are included in, in um, this term because Paul's writing this letter to the whole church, isn't he? He's writing it to, to men and women. So clearly the word son applies to absolutely every one of us. It's worth remembering that in the culture of the day, especially with the, um, the influence of Rome, uh, Roman law, Roman culture, which was very sexist, um, women did not have the same standing as men. And that applied to the ownership of property, and it applied to the treatment of inheritance rights, um, which we're going to come on to in a moment. So perhaps the reason why Paul doesn't say sons and daughters is that he didn't want to give the impression that um, the standing of Christian women was in any way um, less than the men. As far as our status in Christ is concerned, then we are all absolutely equal. We are all sons, regardless of our gender. Now, verse 5 says that we've been adopted, adopted by God. And that's a big deal, isn't it? Because unlike under Jewish um, law and tradition, where adoption actually wasn't a big thing, but under Roman law, and that would have been more relevant as an illustration here, because it's the, the Galatian church was a Gentile church, when a child was adopted, they acquired the same rights as if they were the biological children of their new parents. Their citizenship, their social standing, their position within the family, and their rights to the family property. In all those ways, there was absolutely no difference between an adopted child under Roman law and the other sons and daughters of the family. And likewise, God now views us as being fully members of his family. We're not like little orphans, we're not like little you know, foster children or whatever, or people that he's just chosen to care for. We are fully members of his family in such a way that it can never be revoked. He has given us full entitlement to everything that he has. And that's, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing after amazing in this passage when you really look at it closely. And there's even more. That having adopted us from a legal perspective, verse 6 told us that he has sent the Holy Spirit, who is referred to in this passage as the Spirit of his Son, which is, a, a, I mean, the Holy Spirit has many lovely names, but that's a lovely name in the context of what we're thinking about. Uh, he's also called the Spirit of Jesus in a couple of other places in the New Testament. He has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and the Spirit cries out from within, Abba, Father. 
That's a unique cry. It reminds me of, um, yeah, I don't know if you ever watch any of the um, nature programmes on TV or uh, David Attenborough um, and stuff. Uh, I always find it remarkable um, the way um, parent animals recognise their young. And, um, and one of the ways that parents often recognise their, their, their young, often you know, mm-hmm. like penguin colonies and things like that, and they all look the same, how do they, they recognise them? And it's often the uniqueness of the cry of the, um, of, of the baby, of, 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 of the child. And they make a very distinctive sound. Now, God knows we are his anyway, obviously, because he is omniscient. He knows, he knows everything. But like the thought that we each have now a unique voice. That he recognises as his children. And not only that, but going off piece a little bit here for the passage... But you know how some animals... I always thought actually that sheep were one of those animals that recognise their lambs by the, by the bleats. But it actually, apparently it isn't. Research has shown that it is scent. And many animals recognise their, 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 their lambs, their babies, um, by, by their scent. And 2 Corinthians 2 and 15 says that we are the aroma of Christ. And that, of course, is the Holy Spirit's transformative work in our lives. Uh, as well, isn't it, uh, that produces that sense, the fruit of the Spirit. So we not only sound, sound like his children, we smell like them too, in a good way. So that's just a few of the many amazing things that we, we get here. My, my, my point is simply that God has taken us to be his own children in every way possible. Well, that brings me on to the second theme, and I'm only going to talk about this very briefly, um, but that's not to undermine its massive importance. Um, and it's, it's what the Lord Jesus did that we could have all this, his sacrifice on the cross. You know, people who have gone through the adoption process, certainly in this country and probably in other um, countries of the world, often say about how long and difficult and complicated it is, and sometimes for some it's not just months, but it might go on for years. But that's nothing compared with what God went through, isn't it, when he wanted to adopt us. He didn't just wait many years, he waited thousands of years. In fact, he waited countless millennium if you consider that we were chosen before the world was even created. He waited all that time and only when the time was right could he complete the process. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those uh, under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, his only begotten son, in order to adopt all the many sons and daughters who would believe in the Lord Jesus. He was born under the law, which meant he was bound to fulfil all of its requirements as a Jew, And he did so perfectly, as we know, proving that he was worthy to pay the redemption price, to buy us out of slavery and to set us free. It's the only mention of the cross here, as I say, but it is absolutely vital. You notice the way that Paul Paul, um, puts it. He doesn't say that we were redeemed just so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He doesn't say we were redeemed just so we could have eternal life. 
He doesn't say that it was just so that we could have a new relationship with God, even though all of those things are tremendously important, but he goes to the higher thing, the thing that encompasses it all. He says it was so that we could be adopted to sonship. Which brings me to the third and final theme that Paul talks about. Because we are children of God, we have a right to an inheritance. Interestingly, for such an important thing in Scripture, we're not told very much about it. Um, we're told that it's glorious, Ephesians 1 and 18. It's eternal, he, uh, Hebrews 9 and 15. It will never perish, spoil or fade, and it's kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1 and 4. And um, it's in the kingdom of lights, Colossians 1 and 12, which tells us something about the character of it. Uh, and of course, it's implied in the blessing that was given, uh, in the promise given to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed. So there's obviously something incredible about this inheritance that you and I have. But we're not told any detail. Um, Romans 8 and 17 gives us another dimension. It says that we are co-heirs with Christ, who, Hebrews 1 and 2 tells us, is heir of everything. So maybe that's why we don't have the items itemised for us. You know, if you were the only son and a billionaire, you wouldn't be asking your dad or your mum uh, saying, well, I get that piece of furniture or that painting or that car or even that yacht. You wouldn't be asking all the questions because the answer would always be the same. You get, you get everything. It's all yours. All of it. You are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. I want to finish with one, one final point. Um, we read it earlier in the passage. Um, and if, you, um, if, you, if you've heard many of my ministries before and one of the things I get a bit passionate about, you might have wondered why I didn't make any further comment about it. Um, but there's something wonderful just towards the end of chapter 3. Um, something which should encourage um, anyone who's ever felt undervalued. Something which should inspire us if we've ever felt that we're not as good as the next person. Something which should reassure anyone who's ever had to live with prejudice or discrimination. And something that should affect how we treat one another and, and all of our um, fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's this verse in uh, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul, as you know, as we've um, been um, um, studying in recent weeks, he was trying to deal with a problem in the Galatian church. And it came from the conflict between Jews and Gentiles their beliefs, their cultures, and, and, and so on. But the world is full of conflict, isn't it? Con conflicts like that and, and, and much more. There is sexism, ageism, racism, and a whole load of other isms. People thinking that they're better than others, people thinking that they're more worthy than others, people thinking that they're more entitled. For all sorts of reasons. 
But our loving Heavenly Father says to us all, in my family, you have the same standing. You're all loved and valued the same. You're all one. It's true now, and we will see even more how true it is in the future when the Lord Jesus returns for us and we enter fully into our inheritance in the place that he's preparing for us. But in the meantime, as I say, it's something which should affect how we treat one another in the here and now um, and all our brothers and sisters in Christ because in a very real family sense, that's what we are, brothers and sisters.